if this is your first time here, welcome. Um, on the back of every chair, you will find a little connect card, a welcome card if you can. Take a few moments to fill that out, and then you can drop that off at the welcome bus in the foyer, and we have a um, small gift for you uh, when you drop that off. Uh, today also is Family Sunday, so uh, a lot of our kids are in the room with us, which we love that. It's so cool to have those guys in the room. We do this once a month, and uh, it is a great joy to have those guys here. Um, also, I want to thank uh, all of y'all, everybody who uh, has been praying, who has been preparing uh, dinners for the trainers. Pastor Will had a, a big seizure on Monday, and he's here this morning. We give him the week off to just relax, chill, do nothing but recover. So we are thankful that he's doing much better. We love that guy. He serves us well. So I uh, thank you, church, for uh, loving that family, for praying for him, and uh, just... Uh, uh, just being the church to them. So thanks, man. Look, uh, good to see you here, here, bro. We love you, man. All right, you guys ready? Yes. <laughs> all, all three of you. Born ready. Uh, I like the confidence. Hey, uh, if you guys have your Bibles, open them up to the book of Colossians, chapter 2. We have been studying this book for a few weeks, and uh, here is just a little bit of context, just as a, as a means of, of reminder of what is going on. Uh, the, the bottom line is this, it was, it was a difficult time to be a follower of Jesus at Colossae. There were some, uh, some false teachers who were creeping their way into the Colossian church and they were teaching things that were not true and many Christians, many followers of Jesus were being tempted to just give up on Jesus, to walk away from Jesus. Last week, Pastor Will preached for us verses 6 through 8 of Colossians Two in there, Paul is warning the Colossians to 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 be alert, to to guard against what he calls philosophy. Now, by that sentence, what Paul is not warning against is he's not warning against studying Plato or Aristotle or Socrates. He is he's after a different type of philosophy. He's not speaking of Greek philosophy and he's not even speaking of modern philosophy. What he is speaking against is the mishmash of teaching that these false teachers were pawning off onto the Christians at Colossae. The Greeks wanted Jesus plus prideful knowledge. The Jews wanted Jesus plus works of the law. Others wanted Jesus plus worshiping other supernatural beings. But basically, the, the entire battle that those guys were wrestling could be summarized with one question. The question is this. Is Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough? So Paul is, is, is writing to this church. Paul is writing to you and to me in 21st century South Seattle to say loudly, yes, Jesus is enough. Yes, Jesus is enough. Now something Kind of similar could be said of our, uh, uh, our times right now. It is not the easiest thing to be a follower of Jesus in this postmodern culture. 
The Colossian heresy no longer exists in the exact same way it did back then. But there is still great relevance in Paul's words of warning. We must watch for those deceitful and ultimate destructive philosophies and theologies that to the slightest degree draw us away from Jesus. Any, any, any idea, any system of thought that would suggest that Jesus is not enough, that, that he is not supreme, that he is not sovereign, that he is not infinitely and exclusively worthy of our adoration and worship really is demonic at its core. Beware, watch out says the apostle, of any such philosophies. And we've talked about this some throughout this series, but what might be some of these uh, deceitful and empty philosophies in our day? Pastor Will talked about this last week. He called it autonomous individualism. The, the idea, the belief that the highest value is our own freedom and our own autonomy. Another would be the, the idea that all truth is relative to each individual. Another one could be the idea that right and wrong are merely personal preferences, that there is no objective, transcendent standard to determine good and evil. Or, or what about the, the, the idea that seeking some sense, some vague sense of self-discovery and self-fulfillment, especially when it comes to pleasure and sexuality, is the most noble of human endeavors? And thus, for anyone to suggest that you are misguided or are in moral or theological error is arrogance. What, what about the Bible? The idea of the Bible is a fascinating but air-filled collection of man's best efforts to know God. Or what about the idea that Jesus is necessary for salvation but not sufficient? To Jesus must be added good works, or X, Y, and Z. And here is the thing, y'all. There is a subtlety in believing these things. Is that, is that not true? As many of you know, I was born and raised in Mexico. I came uh, to the United States at 19 as an immigrant. And one of the things, one of the, one of the words that I would use to describe the Latino culture is the word Family. We are very much family and relationally oriented. For um, 19 years of my life, every single Sunday morning from 2 o'clock in the afternoon to about 6.30 or 7, we all had uh, like, a, like a big family dinner together. We, uh, my, my, uh, my abuelos, my grandparents were there, my tios, my tias, my primos, my cousins, my aunts, uncles, my mom, my brothers, and my sister. Uh, later on, we all would get together religiously every single week. That's just a part of who we are. Family, relational, that is a part of, of what describes my, uh, my, my, my heritage and my background. But then I moved to the United States. At 19, single man, away from family, to a podunk town in East Texas. No family close by, and I lived like that by myself for many years. I got invited into people's homes for Thanksgiving and Christmas and whatnot, but little by little, 
I started to believe and give in to this idea of autonomous individualism. I am on my own. The highest value is my freedom, my autonomy, what I can accomplish on my own. I don't need people. I can do this by myself. And it didn't happen overnight. It took years. There's a subtlety of believing these things. And before you know it, you are like way down the path in believing those things. So that's my story. That's my confession for you. I wrestle with this idea of, of, of being individualistic and, and pursuing my own autonomy and wanting to be independent and, and thinking that I don't need you. Anybody relate to that? There's a subtlety. So this, this are just a few suggestions of what are a sampling of what are those empty and deceitful philosophies in our day. And guess what? Just like it, is, it was true back in, uh, in, in, in this time period in, in Colossae, the same answer is true for us today. Jesus is still enough. Jesus is still enough. Today we're looking at verses 9 through 15, and here is my sermon summarized in three words. You can remember this. From the youngest child to the oldest saint, you can't remember this. My sermon in three words, Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. I could also say it in like this, another three words. Christ is better. Christ is better. Let me show you how I came to this conclusion, then we'll pray and we'll dive in. In your Bibles, take a look at how chapter 2 is, uh, is set up, the layout of chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, which we looked at last week. You could summarize it with two words, do not, do not be taken captive by these philosophies and ideas that draw us away from Jesus, sorry, do not. So the Apostle Paul has got yellow flags out and he's waving these flags saying, warning, warning, watch out. Then you skip the verses we're going to look at today. You get to verses 16 through 23 and Paul says again, do not, do not be disqualified. So he had yellow warning flags a few verses ago. And then in verses 16 through 23, he goes into more detail. He's got the red flags. Do not be disqualified. Watch out. Warning, warning, stop. And right in the middle of those two things, our scripture is bracketed by these two big do nots. And right in the middle are the verses we are looking at today that just talk about the work of Jesus in the gospel. The ESV study Bible says this about verses 9 through 15, and this is on the screen. The Colossians have everything they need in Jesus. I could say like this for you. You, Taproot, you, Christian in 21st century South Seattle, you have everything you need in Jesus. Since you have been forgiven of your sins by virtue of the sacrifice of Jesus and are living a new life in him, you should not turn to anything or anyone else to complete your spiritual well-being or to find your flourishing. Jesus is enough. 
J.I. Packer said of these verses, the Colossian saints are to reject the false teaching being offered by some people in their midst because in Jesus they have all they need for salvation and for their ongoing life with God. So Paul is basically saying to us, don't let these two things happen to you. Don't be taken captive. Don't be disqualified. But instead, remember, Jesus is enough. Don't settle for counterfeits. Remember that Jesus is better. Do you see that in the layout of the text? It's clear. Let me answer this question real quick before we dive in. Why do we talk about Jesus so much in this church? Listen, Jesus transformed my life. How could I not talk about him? I was a lost kid running headlong into hell, desperate, uh, addicted, in chains, and Jesus transformed me. He has transformed my marriage. He has transformed my parenting. Heck, I'm not perfect. But everything I am is because of Jesus. How could we not talk about him and make a big deal about Jesus at this church? How many of you have a similar story? Jesus has transformed you. Why do we talk about Jesus so much? Listen, another answer that I could give you, of the many I could give you, is that, listen, this worldview, the world that Jesus offers, really offers us the best explanations to life's biggest questions. Where did we come from? What went wrong? What is the solution and what does the future hold? Our worldview stands that test with reasonable answers. So we're going to talk about Jesus a lot at this church. I promise you that. Jesus is enough. Let's pray, y'all, real quick, and then we'll dive in. Father, thank you for this morning. Jesus, speak to us today. Lord, I pray for those, for, for, for these three groups of people, saints, sinners, and skeptics. Speak to all of us today. Help us to see you, Jesus. You're enough. You are better. Use me today somehow, some way, to re-speak your words. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so verses 9 through 15. Basically, Paul is going to give us his reasons why the Colossians, why you and me should not be enamored with any philosophies that are being thrown at us. The first thing Paul is going to say is that Jesus is enough in his person. That is verse 9. Paul first reminds us again, as he did in chapter 1, that Jesus is God in the flesh. Paul says the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily in Jesus. This word dwells means it's present, it's, it's active. It means that all the fullness of God continually and permanently is at home in him because Jesus is God. Bodily, this word bodily refers to his physical body in him, in his being, etc. We see this truth that Jesus is God in the flesh elsewhere. John chapter 1 talks about Jesus being the Word and being with God and being God and then the Word becoming flesh. 
But the early Gnostics were challenging Jesus' divinity by saying that he was divine, but that he did not have a body. And Paul refutes that strongly here. He is God in the flesh, in bodily form. Paul is, is declaring that the Son, in the Son, there dwells all the fullness of absolute Godhead. That there were no mere rays of divine glory which glided him, lighting up his person for a season, and with splendor not his own, but he was and is absolute and perfect God. The, the, the false teachers at college, they promised a deeper experience. They promised something better of the presence of God. But their promises could not deliver. So Paul counteracts this claim by reminding them who Jesus is. And Paul says that he is alone God and that he is enough. If you want to know what God is like, all you got to do is look to Jesus. He alone is enough in his person. You don't need anything else. The second thing Paul says is in verse 10. The second reason why Paul says don't settle for anything less, but remember that Jesus is enough, is that Jesus is enough in his authority. Paul says that Jesus is the head and rule of all authority. The Colossians were being taught to, to substitute Jesus' office and authority for angelic powers and supernatural beings. But Paul says that Jesus is the supreme head and rule of all authority. Those angels answer to Jesus. There is no force, natural or supernatural, in the universe that will overtake Jesus' place. He is the head. He is the rule. And Paul's point is clear in connection with verse 8. Why would you and why would I want to be taken captive by something that is not divine? Why would we settle for less than Jesus? I was trying to explain something similar to my daughter this week as we were doing family devotions. And I was telling her this uh, illustration. I said, baby, what if I promised to take you to Disney? And, and what if I, I talked about it? What if I, I showed you pictures in, in YouTube videos and, and we got excited? We made a plan. We were ready to go. And when the day came, I asked you to settle for the Disney store at South Center Mall. <laughs> That'd be brutal, right? But we do that. We settle for lesser things to take the rule and the authority in our lives. When Jesus is the supreme head and authority of all things, natural or supernatural. So why do we settle? Instead, see to it that we are, take, that, that we are being taken captive by him. Christ is God in bodily form. He is the head of all rule and authority. Don't be taken captive by anything else. Don't settle for anything less. He is it. He is enough in his person and authority. Don't be deceived. Don't settle for anything less than that. And the third thing that Paul says for us is this. Jesus is enough to secure your salvation. 
Jesus is enough to secure your salvation. That is verses 9 through 15. And in these verses, you find seven through or eight statements that, that show us the decisive victory of the gospel. Here we see in these verses, in these seven through eight statements, we see the, the fullness of the gospel. We see the enoughness of the gospel, the enoughness of the work of Jesus. The, the false teachers were offering a fullness that would not deliver. But Paul shows us the incredible work of Jesus and the completeness, its fullness, the enoughness of the gospel. Each word really could be, each phrase could be its own sermon. So I'm just going to blast through these really quick. I'm barely going to touch the surface on each of these. So I encourage you to take some time later to study them yourself. The first thing he says is he is showing us how the gospel is enough, how the gospel is sufficient in, in the fullness of the gospel. The first thing Paul says in the second part of verse 10 is that Jesus has completed you. You have been filled. The gospel, church, is not this half-hearted work. The goal of the gospel is your completion. Paul says in verse 10, the ESV says, you are filled in him. The NKJV says, you are complete in him. The NAS says, in him, you, are, you have been made complete. The NIV says, you have been given fullness in Jesus. Literally, he has completed you or you are complete in him. While the Jews were looking for, for completion elsewhere in the law and in works and in knowledge and in whatever else, Paul says, church, listen, Christian, you are complete in Christ. You don't need anything else. Don't add it to your faith that Jesus is enough. Don't stoop down below Jesus for anything else. And here's, here's a holistic view of completion. Your salvation is complete in Jesus. You have been justified. There is nothing else you need to do if you've trusted in Jesus. That is it. The second thing is this. Your Jesus-likeness is being completed. And he will see you through. Your sanctification, God will be at work with you to make you more like his son. And one day, that process will be finished. In, 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 in the entire, the 360 degree of completion will come to pass. All things we will be made new when we are glorified. The Bible says this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work. Listen, let this encourage you. How many of you sometimes look at your life and you go, holy cow, what am I doing? Let this encourage you. He who began a good work in you. We'll bring it to completion at the day of Jesus. Amen. He won't leave you as you are. He will complete you. Whatever you're struggling with, whatever your hang-up is, he will complete you. This completeness includes the furnishing of men and women with all that is required for their present and final salvation as individuals and for their collective perfection as forming the church, the body of Christ. We possess, you possess right now all that can be yours on this side of heaven. Let that sink in for just a second. You and I have been filled up with Jesus' life. 
with Jesus's joy, with Jesus's endurance, with Jesus's courage, with Jesus's patience, with Jesus's mercy, with Jesus's joy, with Jesus's fill in the blank. You have it because he lives inside of you. You have everything you need. The life of Jesus in us will not leave the work incomplete. He will finish his work. So let that encourage you this morning. Yes, we are a work in progress. I'll raise both hands for that for myself. But listen, I am stuck in the back of my neck. That was weird. I just felt like somebody was like, I was like, whoa. Sorry. Jesus will complete us. We won't be left stuck. Do you understand? I didn't plan. It just happened. I didn't plan that. It just happened. I'm stuck again. Listen. All right, whatever. <laughs> Question for those. What should be our response to being complete in Christ? You have been given everything you need. What should be our response? Let me just suggest one thing. Second Peter. Chapter 1, verses 2 through 11. Let me read a couple of these verses. If I'm in the right place. For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith virtue. With virtue, knowledge. With knowledge, self-control. With self-control, steadfastness. And steadfastness, godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. What should our response be to being complete in Jesus? We must add to our faith. Now you might be saying, wait a moment, dude. Did you not just say that we don't need to add anything? Yes, you're right. We are not working for our salvation. We are working it out. That's Philippians chapter 2. Peter talks here about being given the divine nature. And then he talks about partnering with that divine nature. The reality that we have been complete in Jesus is when we work with God to be complete in Jesus. What is our response to being complete in Jesus? We must continually be under the control of the Spirit of God. Ephesians chapter 5. That same word that is used in Colossians as being filled and complete is used here in uh, the book of Ephesians. There it says, do not be drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Same word. In Colossians, it just means something that was done to you in the past. In Ephesians, something that is being done to you in the present. Different tense. If a person is complete in Jesus, they will be under the control of the Spirit. This does not mean that you won't sin. It does not mean that you uh, will not have uh, hang-ups and mistakes. What it does mean is that you will repent and have a desire for spiritual things. It means there will be fruit. Galatians chapter 5. So you have been giving everything you need. You are complete in Christ. Now work that out with him. It is a process of becoming more and more like Jesus. 
You, are being, you have everything you need. The second thing Paul says about the fullness, the enough, enoughness of the gospel is this. He has marked you. Verse 11, you were circumcised in Jesus. Circumcision was the identifying physical characteristic of a Jew. Every male was circumcised on the eighth day following their birth. Circumcision was the visible sign of being God's people, separated out of all people, an inheritor of the covenant promises. Anyone converting to Judaism would have to do this. It was the cutting off of a former way of life, a removal of flesh, never to be reattached because the true you has been revealed and released to live. For the believer, this is a spiritual circumcision, one of the heart, accomplished not by a man, but by Jesus when we put our trust and our faith in him. So listen, church, Paul is telling us this, that Jesus' death has provided all his people with a spiritual circumcision that marks them out as members of the new covenant people of God. The symbol has given way to the reality, enabling you and me to finally live live out a true life of consecration to God. I love this translation of verse 11 from the Jewish uh, translation. It says this, listen, this is the whole point here. You were circumcised with a circumcision not done by human hands, but by God. Listen. This is what it accomplished. It accomplished the stripping away of the old nature's control over the body. Before you were marked in Jesus because of the gospel, you were a slave to, you were controlled by the old nature. But you've been marked. That control has been removed. So you can finally... Say yes to Jesus, no to sin. That is great news. Because that means, church, that those things that you struggle with, those sins that you wrestle with, don't control you. You can say no to them. And you can run to Jesus. God's work allows us to live for him. So what should be our response to being marked by God? I would encourage you to do this. Be in the practice of putting off sin and putting on Christ. Ephesians 4. Since you learned Christ, then put off these sinful practices. Colossians 3, 8 through 11. Put off these things because your old man has been put off. 2 Timothy 2. Flee. Flee sin. Pursue righteousness. A desire to rid your life of sin is a true sign of being marked by Jesus. And listen, you have been empowered to finally do that. Who will empower you to do that? Jesus. John Piper said this, People want to pursue their freedoms they have in Jesus without regard to personal holiness. What is the negative effect of giving up such freedoms? We are more captured by how we can extend our freedoms than we are about growing in grace. We need to develop mentality and lifestyle so that we never forget that life is short. That billions of people hang in the balance of heaven and hell every single day. That love of money is spiritual suicide. That the goals of upward mobility, nicer clothes, nicer cars, nicer houses, nicer vacations, nicer food and hobbies are poor and dangerous substitutes for the goals of living for Jesus with all of your might. 
He has marked you. You can finally live for him. Third thing that Paul says about the the fullness of the gospel is that he has baptized you. Baptism is a picture of being, being dead, being buried, and being resurrected. And Paul here is referring to uh, not a physical baptism, but spiritual baptism. Why do I say that? Baptism means, means a placing into. So when a believer places their trust and puts their faith in Jesus, they are placed in Jesus. And only Jesus can place us in him. So Paul's, Paul's point here is that Jesus is enough to do this work of salvation. He has placed you in him. You've been baptized into Jesus when you trusted and and have faith in him. And here are the results of that baptism. We are are buried with him. Again, spiritual, not physical. Being, Being buried in Jesus means that we identify with his death. By faith, we recognize that Jesus' death was my death. He was my substitute. Being buried with Christ also means that the old sinful man has been crucified. Uh, the, the old man is the person where, that you and I were prior to believing in Jesus. How has the old sinful man been crucified? Let this encourage you. Since mastery in your life, since authority over you has been destroyed. Let that encourage you. Romans 6, 6 says this, it has been brought to nothing. It has been rendered idle. It is inoperative. It is deprived of force, influence, and power. Let that be true about you. Think of those things when you struggle with things. Since damning and condemning power over you and me is destroyed because we've been placed in Jesus. That is, that is great news. The New American Commentary says this, Believers, by definition, are those who, by their union with Christ, died with him on the cross. That death had a definite purpose in the spiritual life history of the believer. We were crucified in order that our sinful nature might be stripped off its power. In those who are baptized, those who have been placed into Jesus, those that have been uh, identified with his death, will also will be raised with him. Our baptism with Jesus not only brings about the death of the old man, but we are raised with him to live in the new man. The new man is the person you are in Christ. It's the person God created you to be. Just like he died, he was buried, and he was raised to life, so will you be as well. So you are as well. What does that life look like? We were raised to walk. Romans 6, we were therefore buried with him through baptism and death in order that just as Jesus was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. You know, what is the greatest apologetic that we possess our lives. Lives that demand people to ask questions. Why? Because we have been, we have been placed into Christ. We are dead to the old man. And then we are, we are being raised to walk in a new way. Ephesians 2 says this, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. Good works. 1 John says this, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. 
You've been placed into him. You identify with his death. You have died to the old man so that you and I might be raised to walk in a newness of life. You've been marked. You can walk in newness of life finally. The the power of the old man has been stripped and ripped off of your life so you can walk. And you are complete. You've been given all you need to walk in this way. Isn't that great news? Now question, since this is spiritual baptism, do we need to be baptized physically? And the answer is yes. Physical baptism is an external portrait of an internal work. I am externally and publicly uniting with Jesus. Physical baptism is a sign of the new covenant in Jesus. It is to be done by immersion under water because the water symbolizes the grave where no life can be sustained. The raising out of the water is symbolic of being raised to walk in newness of life. So if you have never been baptized and you call yourself a Christian, listen, be baptized. We don't have to wait to Easter to do this. We can do this next week. Be baptized. That's a declaration of what Jesus has done for you. Easy enough. What should be our response to being baptized into Jesus? Listen, consider yourself dead to sin. We are to live as if the old man does not exist because what? He really does not exist. We are to live as if the old man has no power over us. Because guess what? He really has no power over us. We should also rejoice. Because our spiritual baptism is a picture of the future resurrection. One day, God will make all the sad things come untrue. And things will be as they were always meant to be. Two more reasons why the gospel is enough. Verse 13, he has made you alive. You were dead. Totally dead. Not mostly dead. Not somewhat dead. You were dead. You were swimming. You drowned. You sank to the bottom of the ocean and a shark was trying to eat you. You were dead. But remember, Paul is speaking here spiritually, not physically. It is not a physical circumcision that matters, it is a spiritual one. It is not a physical baptism that matters, it is important, but ultimately, it is spiritual one that matters. And here's the same thing. It is not a physical death, but it's a spiritual death. When Paul speaks of our deadness, he means that we are spiritually dead to the life of God. We are powerless and unable to respond to the gospel. We are under the control of our sinful passions and the prince of the power of the air. That is where we used to be. We were physically alive while walking around in a state of deadness, devoid of the life of God and activated by a totally depraved nature. You were dead. But then the best words in basically maybe the New Testament, but God made you alive together with him. Since we are dead, our hope is only in that God would move on the scene. In this verse, you see the the Godward focus of salvation. God made you alive. Salvation is all from God, it is all because of God, and it is all to God. What does it mean to be alive? 
We are no longer under sin's dominion. We are no longer destined for the wrath of God. And we are given faith to respond to the gospel. How were you and I made alive? God chose us, Ephesians 1. God made us alive, Ephesians 2. God called us by name. God called you by name. If you don't matter to anybody on this earth, you matter to God. He called you by name. If he hadn't called you by name... Listen, think of, think of the, the scene at Lazarus' tomb. If God had not called Lazarus by name, every dead man in the graveyard would have stood up. He called you by name. He made you alive. God has made you alive in Jesus. God does not just throw a life vest to a drowning person. He goes to the bottom of the sea, pulls the corpse from the bottom of the sea, takes him up on the bank, breathes into him the breath of life and makes him alive. That is what God does. That last statement that Paul makes, that the, the, the last statement that Paul makes that shows us the fullness of the gospel and the enoughness of Jesus is that he has forgiven you. You've been made alive. You've been baptized. You've been marked. You've been completed. You've been forgiven. Verses 13, basically through 15. This is how God has made us alive. Only he can do this because he alone is God in the flesh. He could not make us alive unless he dealt with our sin. He made us alive by forgiving us of our sin. How has Jesus forgiven you of your sin? Take a second, if you can. This is maybe not the healthiest thing. But think through this last week. And think of your shortcomings. I I probably would have like a mini the size of cheesecake factories to think through mine, you know? But how has Jesus forgiven you? Verse 13, completely. Completely. Let that, let, hear, hear that again. Completely. Completely. All of your trespasses every single one has been forgiven past present and future sin forgiven be free you're forgiven be free live free you are forgiven you are complete you have everything you need you've been marked the old power uh, of the old man has been stripped and ripped out of your heart you can live for jesus you are baptized into him you, are, are, you identify with his death. He places you in him and he, walk, he erases you to walk in newness of life. And listen, you've been forgiven. Woo! Let that truth do something to you this morning. I'm almost done, I promise. How has he forgiven us? He canceled our debt. He canceled your debt. This phrase indicates a debt that we have signed. Something we owe that we agreed to. It is a certificate of indebtedness written by our own hand. This picture here is, is, is that we are owing a debt that we are incapable of paying. This debt has been canceled. Your debt has been canceled. This to cancel means to wipe out, to, to obliterate, to, to erase. Listen, when we adopted our son Marcus... You know what happened to his old birth certificate? Listen, Marcus was born into lots of chaos. 
abuse and drugs and uh, abandonment, all kind of really difficult and broken situations. You know, you know what happened when we adopted him? That certificate of birth was obliterated. The same thing has happened for you and for me. Our debt, that the, the old us, the old man, with all of our failures and shortcomings and chaos, that whole thing has been obliterated. It has been, it has been erased. Paul's, Paul uses this word here to mean it has, it's been blotted out of writing. Like it never existed. Isaiah 1 says this, Come, let us reason together, says God. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. How has he obliterated that record of our debt? He nailed it to the cross, says Colossians 2. There was an ancient practice for canceling debt. When a person had paid their debt in full, the owner of that bond would come and nail it to a building that had been purchased. Christ and his person paid the debt that the lost verdict had placed on us. He died my death. He suffered in our place. His death was the full payment for our sin's debt. Our sin, listen, listen to this. Our sin will no longer be brought up on our account. And our debt will no longer be back on the ledger. Listen, how many of you have ever had a, experience with a friend, family member, where you, you know, maybe had a, a little uh, scuffle relationally, and they bring it up again and again and again. Anybody? You did this. Remember that thing? You did this. You stink, you know? You know when will Jesus do that? Never. Never. Don't live under shame. Don't live under guilt. He will never say, look what you have done. Look what you were. It is finished. The debt is paid. Christ satisfied God's justice by dying for all to pay for the sins of the elect. These sins can never be punished again since that would violate God's justice. Sins can only be punished once, either by a substitute or by yourself. And how do you respond to these last two things? God has made you alive. God has forgiven you. First, if you don't know Jesus, turn from sin. Turn to Jesus. We have spent the last 40 minutes talking about all the benefits of Jesus. You've been completed. The old man has been stripped off. The power that sin had over you has been broken. You, if you have been, uh, if you identify with his death, you've been placed into Christ and you are now able to walk in a newness of life. There is power. You, you have been, you've been forgiven. You've been made alive. There is no one like Christ. He is enough. So if you don't know him, friend, Turn from sin. 
turn to Jesus. Christian, if you, for, for you, what I would say is this. This may be odd, but don't submit to slavery again. Watch out for legalism. Watch out from, from, from going back to those chains that held you back. They don't have to. Don't, don't believe that you've got to add to the gospel. You don't have to, don't, don't live in that uh, uh, cage. You don't have to add anything to life and faith in Christ. And lastly, Christian, I would say this. How do you respond to being uh, made alive and forgiven? Be motivated by gospel implications. Be motivated by the life of Jesus. You have the power to live such a life. Forgive as Christ forgave. Welcome as Christ welcomed. Love as Christ loved. Empower. Empower men and women to live for Jesus. Be a person who pursues justice. Be a person who is a person of peace like Jesus in the midst of a panic and anxious culture. Be motivated by gospel implications. So again, my sermon in three words is this. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. The gospel is enough. Do not settle for the Disney store when Disney World is offered to you. He has completed you. You've got everything you need this side of heaven to live for him. He has marked you. The old man's power has been stripped off of your heart. You can now finally live live for Christ. He has baptized you. You've been placed into him. You've been buried with him. The old man is dead and you have been raised to walk in newness of life. And he has made you alive. You can finally be the person you were meant to be. And he has forgiven your sins. No, not once will they be brought back up to your memory. He's forgiven you completely. Why? Because Jesus is enough. Why? Because Christ is better. This is the best news in the world, church. This week, as you leave, let these truths set you free and empower you to live the life that Jesus has uh, made you capable of living. So go declare and go demonstrate this message this week. Jesus is enough. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that today and every day, we would see the beauty of Christ. I pray that the statement, Jesus is enough, would be true for every single one of us in this room. Lord, I pray that the statement, Jesus is better, would be true for every single person in this room. Thank you for your work. What you have done for us is incredible what my my fear this morning has been that we know these truths and it's it's easy to just nod to them intellectually but i pray that today that by your spirit that you would do something that is supernatural that, that i cannot do 
And that, that, you would, that you would make these truths not just be something we know in our head, but that they would be something that has uh, uh, captivated our hearts, that has uh, empowered our hearts, encouraged our hearts, Lord. I'm, I'm not sure what, what, I know a lot of stories of people in this room. You know them all. There are people here who have been living under shame and guilt for many years. Today, may the truth of forgiveness set them free. There are people in this room who who are habitually struggling with sin. Today, may the truth that the, the, the old man's power has been stripped off and they can finally find some freedom, may that be true for them today. If, if anybody in this room does not know you, would you make those souls, those hearts alive today? May they see the beauty of Christ. Lord, for those of us who are frustrated with, with our, our sanctification, our becoming like Jesus, help, let us be encouraged that you will complete the work you started. You will not leave us alone. Why? Because you're enough. There's none like you. You are better. So do that work today, this week in us. And Lord, we respond now. We will sing. We will give financially. We will come to the table to remember and celebrate what you've done. The enoughness of the gospel. There is none like you, Lord. Move now amongst your people. Do a supernatural work that only you can do. Meet your people as we sing, as we give, as we come. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, church, let's, go, let's respond by singing.